So as I may mention, we'll be in Romans 2, and uh, we'll go ahead and finish. I think I'll finish the chapter today. I want to go back and just discuss a couple things of what we uh, discussed last week, because I think there was a lot of uh, good material, but new material that I didn't necessarily intend to add, but at times, sometimes when you're teaching, you go further than you would wish, but that's not always a bad thing. Um, So we'll be in chapter 2. And um, we won't go ahead and, well, Chase, since you're guest today, would you mind reading uh, verses 12 to 16, please? Thank you. So if you remember uh, last week, we went through the first 11 verses of this uh, portion of chapter 2, and we discussed really the Jewish influence and the way Paul was writing to the Church of Rome. My uncle made mention that these were presumably Jews inside of the church. So Paul is talking specifically here to Jews and moral Gentiles in Rome as, again, my uncle had mentioned, and he's addressing certain issues that they had. So really, what is Paul addressing here, specifically in the first 11 verses, and then as we'll see, continue through 12 to 29, the end of the chapter, is he's going to go in more detail of the error of their ways and their belief. So Paul here is addressing their hypocrisy by pointing out their, that is the Jews and the moral Gentile, their condemnation and judgment of the world for their unbelief. So, as we established last week that in chapter 1, all men stand guilty before the judgment seat of God. No one is going to stand before God and say, I didn't know you. God is clearly revealed throughout all of nature. And these Jews and specific Gentiles here at the Church of Rome correctly point that out. But they think that because of their keeping of the law and their circumcision, as we'll see, that they stand right before God. And that's clearly not the case. So... They point to the unbelief of others while having hard hearts and closed eyes to their own failures before the law and for failing to put their trust in Jesus Christ. And really, I think a very important verse in this whole chapter is verse 17. The Apostle Paul points out who he's writing to. He says, indeed, you are called a Jew. And what is the issue that they are resting upon here? As you see this word here in verse 17, rest or rely. That is the key word, I think, in all of this chapter here is rest, rely. What are these individuals and what are these Jews and moral Gentiles, what are they putting their hope and trust in? It's not in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is pointing that out. It is in their meticulous, supposed meticulous keeping 
of the law and the commandments, and also, as we'll see here, of circumcision. So, we establish the word rely or rest on the law. So, God sees their unbelief, as mentioned in verse 4, and patiently waits for repentance by showing the words goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering. This, in turn, this mercy of God, this gentleness and goodness of God, should lead these individuals to repentance for their sins. And what does it also say in verse 4? That they despise the riches of his goodness. That word despise is really a strong word. They despise the goodness of God, and they are not repenting and turning from their sins. And this, in turn, leads to verse 5. And verse 5, we discussed quite a bit last week, and the importance of verse 5 here in this passage. And as we look at verse 5, let me go ahead and read it. But in accordance with their hardness and their impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And let me read verse 6. Who will render to each one according to his deeds. So Paul here uses... Two very strong words. He used despised in verse 4. And then also in verse 5, he uses hardness and impenitent. Impenitent just means unrepentant. So they have not turned from their sins. He, descri- he uses those words to describe their hearts and warns them that continued unbelief and reliance on the law will lead to nothing but continued wrath heaped up for the day of judgment. As we just mentioned, because of the unbelief present in this group of people, they are heaping up wrath in the day of wrath. And let me go ahead and look at that as we examine this verse a little further. As I don't think we sufficiently concluded last week all that we were discussing. And uh, there was a couple people afterwards that made mention of a couple things that I want to address. So let's examine the doctrine of eternal punishment as we briefly mentioned last week. And I like charts. I like illustrations because... They help me out a lot. So let me just go ahead and draw this here as we discussed. I think taking into account Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 is pivotal here in understanding what the Apostle Paul is saying. And really, as we discussed last week, these chapters are just a progression, one on top of the other. Chapter 1 is dealing with the natural, really Gentile world. Chapter 2 is dealing with these moral Jews and Gentiles in the church of Rome, thinking they're apart from the Gentiles. And then, as my uncle will discuss later on in chapter 3, it's Paul lumps it all together, saying that there is none righteous, there's no man righteous, and then we continue on. But let me go ahead and... and I apologize if this writing is, is not uh, super, super big. We have chapter 2. And what we're dealing with here is the natural man in chapter 1. And then chapter 2 the Jew, or the supposed orthodox. So these are people that, you know, keep the law, they keep the the commandments, and they think that by doing that, they're going to be righteous in the sight of God. And as we look here, I want to take an example. My dad mentioned last week of this verse that the Lord Jesus spoke about in Matthew 11. Let me go ahead and turn there real quick and read this, because I think this sets up the picture here of wrath in the day of wrath, and the judgment that these individuals will face. So, Matthew eleven twenty to 24, I think this is a section that most of us here are familiar with. But the Lord is, the Lord Jesus is addressing a certain crowd. 
Let me go ahead and read it here. It says, Woe to the impenitent cities. Verse 20 in Matthew 11, he says, Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And for you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. I really want to pay attention to that verse 24. Let me read it again. But I say to you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So we're all familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, how in Genesis, God brought down wrath through the angels and destroyed all of Sodom and Gomorrah for their great wickedness, really for their homosexuality and just going after strange flesh, not being hospitable to strangers, all sorts of stuff. So we're well familiar with that story and the great wickedness of it. Even Peter and Jude mention it in their respective, um, in their respective writings. So we understand the wickedness of these two nations, or these two cities. Then uh, Jesus also explains of Tyre and Sidon. If you're not familiar, Tyre and Sidon, they're on the Phoenician coast. They were known for their luxuriousness. You know, Sidon, uh, the city of Sidon was on the coast, and they had traders go all throughout the Mediterranean, bringing in luxurious goods and spices and gold and silver, known for extravagant wealth and Tyre also. And really, the Jews had in mind here of these people being extremely wicked extremely deceitful and dishonest and ungodly. But what he is saying here, what Jesus is saying here, and thus also the Apostle Paul in, in 2.5, is that it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for these people that reject the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what's astounding. Let me read these words by John Gill. I think he does a great way of illustrating and summarizing the whole thing. He says, these words suppose that, suppose that the men of Tyre and Sidon will be punished for their many abominable sins committing, uh, committed against the law in light of nature. But the inhabitants of Chorazin and Bethsaida have rejected the Messiah and the doctrines of the gospel against all the evidence of miracles and convictions of their own minds. That is what's astounding. And how do we know that these individuals in the Roman church heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, I think it's quite evident in chapter 1. The Apostle Paul mentions in the first 15 verses, you know, the name of Christ. These individuals know the truth, but yet they're judging this natural world. They're judging the Gentiles, rightly so, but they're not looking at themselves. They're not seeing that their unrighteous deeds by trying to uphold the law or putting their faith and trust in circumcision is going to lead them down the same road to destruction, And what's even more amazing is that what Jesus said of Sodom and Gomorrah, if these words had been preached to them, they would still exist to this day. What we see here also is that wrath in the day of wrath. These individuals in the Roman church who knew the truth are heaping up for themselves coals in the last day. You see, every person will stand before the seat of God, but will answer according to what they have been given. So these people here, they think that Tyre and Sidon will be destroyed in the day of judgment, rightly so. 
But their judgment, their wrath in the day of wrath, the day of judgment when they stand before Christ is going to be even greater because they knew the truth. They had the opportunity to be saved. And what does the Apostle Paul say? Because of your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. Let me go ahead and read Matthew 10, 14, and 15, which is very similar. Whoever does not receive you, nor heeds your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. What is he saying? What is Jesus telling the apostles here? If you proclaim the gospel, if you do the miracles and the works and the wonders in these cities and they reject you, the term shake the dust off your feet, shake it off, walk out of the city, it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for them. It's going to be more tolerable for the wicked who do all the abominable things and never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ than those who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and reject it. Your wrath in the day of wrath is going to be far greater because you heard the truth and you hardened your heart and you rejected it. And that's what the Apostle Paul is warning these people here. You must repent of your sins. If you do not, your wrath in the judgment day is going to be far greater than even that of Sodom and Gomorrah. And think of it. Put yourself in the shoes of these people here that are hearing this. They're thinking by keeping the moral law that they're going to be, you know, pun intended, kosher with God. They're going to have the righteousness of God. I mean, to think of this here and put yourself in the, in the shoes of these people, they have to just be thinking to themselves, my goodness, the Apostle Paul here, what is he talking about? How am I going to face more wrath than Sodom and Gomorrah or Sidon and Tyre? It's not necessarily because of their works, but because of their unbelief, hearing Jesus Christ and rejecting it. And I'll give a warning. There, as I said, there, there may be plenty of people at Bible Chapel or, or through our church communities that, you know, have outward signs of repentance, but their heart is hardened and it's impenitent. And if you go throughout your whole life of hearing Jesus Christ and rejecting him, I'm here to tell you, according to Romans 2, verses 5, the Apostle Paul through the Holy Spirit, that your judgment, your wrath is going to be far greater than the Gentile world in chapter 1. As we always sit back and look and, and make judgment on others, but if we hear Jesus Christ and reject his name, I'm here to tell you that your judgment is going to be far greater than those wicked in the day of judgment. Let me go ahead and read Acts 13, uh, 48 to 52. This is the Apostle Paul as he's going about, and this is connected with Matthew 10, 14, and 15 that we just read. Uh, I think one of the greatest verses in all of the Bible is Acts 13, 48. It says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. That is an absolute wonderful verse of the sovereignty of God. That as many as heard the word of God, they were appointed to eternal life, they believed. But let's continue on and see what goes on here. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But listen here in verse uh, 51... In 52, listen to this. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Barnabas and Paul, after going through and presenting the miracles and the gospel of Jesus Christ when they were rejected by the Jews, it says they shook the dust off of their feet. They basically left 
and turn themselves or turn the Jews over to themselves. Their hearts were completely hardened. Their hearts were impenitent. They saw Jesus Christ. They saw the miracles of his apostles, and they rejected. So it is more tolerable for Sodom, for Tyre, Sidon, and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for these people here who rejected the apostles and their message of repentance in Jesus Christ. Think about that. And I encourage you, if, if you question your salvation or if you don't think you're saved, you really need to take into consideration the more you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and the more you reject it, the more your heart is hardened, your judgment in the day of wrath is going to be far greater than these people in chapter 1 in Sodom and Gomorrah for your unbelief because you heard the truth. And before I continue on, if anyone has any comments or questions or anything to add, you can go ahead and do that at this time. Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yes. I even think this, this can go into the context of believers. As my dad said, like, all the different versions of the Bible. How often do we open up our Bibles on a weekly basis? Do we all have a scheduled time to pray, to read the Word, to memorize Scripture? Yes, we're believers in Jesus Christ, but that doesn't mean that we won't answer for what we've done. I think 2 Corinthians 5 makes that clear. As we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and answer to what we've been given. So... As believers, we should take a look on ourselves and see what we're doing on a daily basis. What are we doing to further the gospel of Christ and to honor and glorify him? Yeah. Yes, point well taken. Anything else? All right. It's just astounding. I must answer every question. Okay, I digress. All right, as we continue on along those lines, we also talked about open up a can of worms last week. That I didn't necessarily intend to, but it was, and I think it was good. So let's look at something else along those lines that were discussed last week. And uh, what we talked about really is that the different uh, uh, people in, in eternal perdition and those who have not heard the gospel of Christ. Some may ask, how is it fair that there are some people in eternal perdition and eternal judgment that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, let me put it this way. It's completely fair because these individuals are still sinners and they rejected the natural evidence that there is of the existence of God. Their uh, punishment is according to Romans 1 or the natural evidence. So as I may not have articulated exactly how I wanted to last week, as we're looking at this and the judgment, eternal judgment of the people in eternal perdition or in eternal hell, that the people in Romans 1 who are in hell because of their sins. They're not going to be judged for rejecting Christ because they never heard the gospel of Christ. But that doesn't mean that there's anyone in hell unfairly. Every person that's in eternal judgment is in eternal judgment because it's completely fair for their sins. They're going to be punished for what was revealed to them and for what they rejected. I think it is fair to say, based off uh, Romans 5, that one rejection of Christ will result in condemnation and further and further hardening of the heart through further revelation will heap up wrath of God even more upon themselves. So this is a continuation, really, of our, of our discussion 
is that, yes, the Gentile in the natural world in chapter 1 is guilty, and they are answering for that in all of eternity, but the people who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and reject it time and again will face greater wrath and judgment in the day of wrath for their rejection. And uh, afterwards, last, uh, last week, Chris Jones came up to me, and he shared with me Revelation 14, 6 about that. I'll go ahead and read it real quick, and he's not here this week. Um, but nonetheless, he was kind of insinuating of, of the gospel being preached throughout the whole earth. He said, uh, Revelation fourteen six. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach those who dwell on the earth, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So I guess he may have been insinuating that every person will hear the name of Jesus Christ. And before I continue on, I do want to put that in context because that is completely true. How do we know that? Philippians 2, 9 to 11 attests that. And it says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that is completely true. Every person who was ever born, lived, and died will at one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, but not necessarily in a salvation sense. They will honor Christ as the King. That doesn't mean that every person is going to be saved or that every person has heard the gospel, but they will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father forever. There will be a final acknowledgement of Christ, but it will be in eternity and before it is too late. And uh, verse 16, I think, goes along those lines. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel, we'll all be judged, stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and be judged by him. So that's just something to take into consideration. That does not mean every person has heard the gospel and that every person is going to be saved. But it's just a recognition that, in the end, Jesus Christ will be uttered and every knee will bow before him on the day of judgment and afterwards. Uh, Before I uh, continue on, anyone have anything else? Very much, yeah. And this is way deep into the weeds, but, I mean, theologians like Jonathan Edwards, I I think it was him, you know, they thought, you know, if someone was born in a dark dungeon and that's all they lived in their whole life, would they still be able to know that there's a God? And I I think here we'll see from verses 12 to 16 that's clearly evidence that everyone is given a conscience. Everyone, yes, everyone has the ability to know that there is a God. Regardless of physical circumstances, whether you're blind or deaf or crippled or whatever, you inherently know that, yes, you didn't come from nothing. Yes, thank, thank you for that point. So verses 12 to 16 is chase read. I'm just going to read verse 12. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So Jew and Gentile, whether you've heard the law or have not heard the law, both stand condemned regardless whether it's with the law or without the law continued theme that everyone stands condemned, excuse me, before the judgment seat of Christ. And I won't go ahead and read it again, but I think really what this uh, section 
the summation of it is verse 15, the word conscience. And I think everyone's probably at least heard the word before, conscience. And really, it's been given by God to every single person ever born, because every person knows somewhat right from wrong. The, uh, I, don't, I don't know if any of you get the free grace broadcaster. Actually, my grandpa got it for me, and the last edition was on the state of conscience, the conscience of man, woman, who have ever been born. And really what the Apostle Paul is saying here is, yes, though the Gentiles did not necessarily have their written law, they still have a law written on their hearts. Think of it this way. Think of all the cultures that have ever existed on the face of the earth. There is a general consensus that marriage or between heterosexual relationship between man and woman is a good thing. Almost most individuals know that killing someone is wrong. That is, unless they harden their hearts, and that's a different discussion. But most people know that stealing or, or taking from, from someone is wrong. Now, I even think of all these people that believe in abortion. You know, you know they think they can suck a baby out of the womb at, you know, 30 weeks, and there's nothing wrong with it. But go and try to take some money from their paycheck, and they'll be the first ones in their boss's office complaining that there was something taken from them. I really think that goes to illustrate that every person has a conscience, it's just whether you harden your conscience or not. And that's what the Apostle Paul here is saying, is that yes, though the Gentiles did not have the law, they still had a law written on their hearts. They know that it was not right to murder. The Roman government, as pagan as they were, they knew that murder, generally speaking, was wrong. That's why they had laws, that's why they had civil government, so on and so forth. All of the pagan cultures uh, that Israel dealt with, to some extent, knew that murder, that thievery, that taking from someone was wrong. And I think that's, not to get too deep into the weeds, but, you know, why Marxism doesn't work, because it's really against human nature. You know, everyone has what's theirs, and they don't want it to be taken, because people know it's what's right and wrong. So that's what the Apostle Paul is really saying here, is that they have a conscience. They have no excuse when they stand before God. They at least have that law written upon their heart. And Charles Ellicott... In his commentaries, he wrote this, and uh, let me go ahead and read it here real quick. Jew and Gentile alike will be judged. The Jew by the written law against which he has sinned, and the Gentile by the unwritten law of conscience against which he has also sinned. The mere hearing of the law will bring no exemption to the Jew, and on the other hand, the Gentile, who at the dictates of conscience acts as if he were subject to the law, shall have the full benefit of the law given to him. And this will be done, this strict measure of justice will be applied at the last great day of judgment. Again, a reoccurring theme throughout the whole Bible and throughout chapter 1 and 2 and throughout the rest of Romans is that there is none righteous. Everyone stands condemned before God. Your condemnation can differ according to what you have been given, but every man, woman, and child stands condemned before God because they know right from wrong. In verse 16, in that day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Really, when you think about it and you dig deep down into it, that's a terrifying verse for every sinner, for every conscience sinner, every sin that you commit. That is a terrifying verse because every secret thing will be brought to light in the day of judgment by Jesus Christ as we all stand naked and condemned before him. 
Next time you sin, take that in consideration. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men. And uh, I thought of one verse, or uh, one stanza of Rejoice the Lord is King, one of my favorite hymns by Charles Wesley. And I think it's the third stanza where it says, His kingdom cannot fail. He rules over earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. I just think that's a real encouragement. Again, we see all the injustices. Jesus Christ will make it right on the last day by revealing all the secrets of men, women, and children who were ever born and bring justice to it all. So uh, in the last 10 minutes or so, it's 10.02, so i got about 10 minutes. I think I'm going to finish the chapter. Um, and then uh, next week, Lord willing, I think my uncle will take chapter 3. But let's go ahead and get started on the rest of the chapter. Verse 17, the Apostle Paul is now turning his attention back to the Jews and going through the commandments, all of the commandments that they think they've kept, but that they haven't. People think by their works or by their keeping of the law, they would be justified in God's sight. Not so, because if you fail at one point of the law, you fail or you fall at the whole law. Matthew 5.22, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is a well-familiar verse. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, you shall be guilty before the supreme court. Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Breaking one portion of the law, one part of it, one day of your life, you're guilty enough to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 4.3. Romans 4.3. Let me go ahead and flip over there real quick. For what does it... Or, or actually, Romans 4.4. 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You trying to keep the law, trying to keep the Ten Commandments, it's not counted as grace or righteousness. It's a debt... It's a detriment to you. And the Apostle Paul, he says here in Philippians 3, 4 to 6, listing of his accomplishments here, he says, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law found blameless. There was no better Jew than the Apostle Paul in the first century. If you look at all of his characteristics, all of his mental power, all that he did, there was no better Jew than the Apostle Paul. But what does he say in verse 7? He says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. What things were gained, his keeping of the law, his circumcision, what they were gained to him, he now counts them as loss for Christ. Because he knows, the Apostle Paul knows that his works, his physical things that he does, are nothing compared to the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And let me go back here to Romans 2. Anyone have any comments to that section of verses? All right, and let's go ahead and uh, briefly here finish up the rest of the chapter. Let me go ahead and read verse four, uh, 25. The Apostle Paul now addresses really a problem that the first century church is going to have for quite a while. That is of circumcision. For he says in verse 25, for circumcision, excuse me, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And this is something that the apostles and the early church elders deal with time and again. Acts 15, I think my uncle brought up after uh, church last week where the first Jerusalem council was brought together, where the apostle Paul and Barnabas went down to see the apostles and the elders 
in Jerusalem. Uh, James was there. And really they were dealing with the issue of the Judaizers and that of circumcision that these Judaizers were saying that, yes, you have to believe in Christ, but, or plus, you have to be circumcised. There is no plus when it comes to justification. It is by the righteousness of Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He also addresses it even in Galatians 2, where Barnabas and Peter were even taken away with it, saying that the Gentiles had to be circumcised to become Christians. No, no, no. That's justification plus works. No. or that, I'm sorry, that's faith plus works. It is justification alone by faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 25. Let me go ahead and read this from the New Geneva Study Bible. Paul's argument in chapter 2 now moves to a climax. Condemnation results from failure to obey revelation of whatever kind. Jews had transgressed the Mosaic law and particularly emptying circumcision of its real significance. Paul recognizes the privilege of Jewishness and of circumcision in particular, but uh, physical circumcision is a symbol of of sanctification and renewal of life. It's a physical symbol. The reality, not the sign, is the vital thing and may be possessed irrespective of Junus. He's telling him here that your circumcision is simply a physical sign. It's a looking forward, the promise, the hope. There is no merit in it whatsoever. The circumcision is nothing in the physical form but to give evidence of what is to come. It is not of the skin but it is of the heart. The one who is right with God is not by their physical characteristics, but by the characteristics of their heart. And we see this even as a continued theme in the Old Testament. Think of Habakkuk 2.4. What does it say? Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by his faith. And they mention here Romans 9, 6-8. Let me go ahead and read what the Apostle Paul says in in Romans 9, just jumping ahead a little bit. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. And let me finish up here. Hebrews 3, 8 to 9. And to whom he did swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And if you know that uh, specific portion of chapter 3 of Hebrews, he is talking about the children of Israel who wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years and God destroyed them all, all over the age of 20. Why? It was because of unbelief. Yes, they were Jews. Yes, they were circumcised. Yes, they, they were, at that point, getting the law or had the law, and they had Moses. But what does it say? They were destroyed. Why? Because of their unbelief. And the Apostle Paul is trying to hammer home here this point with this specific group of people in a broader audience in general. It is not your physical characteristics, where you are, who you are, what you do, so on and so forth, yada, yada, not your circumcision. It is by your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, as he'll introduce in the next chapter, at the end of chapter 3. And really, let's uh, finish up here. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God.
And I think is every person in here, I believe, is probably a Gentile, unless you have some Jewish blood in here. Um, I think it's an encouragement and a wonderful portion of this text that it's not by our keeping of the law, it's not by our heritage, it's not by our descendanthood from Abraham in the physical sense, but the door has been opened for all Jew and Gentile, that it's the circumcision of the heart from the Holy Spirit and having the righteousness of Christ on your behalf. That is how you are justified. And as we'll continue on through Romans, we will see that context. I think my uncle will take chapter 3, and uh, lucky for me, I love chapter 4, so I'll get to do chapter 4, and, and we'll look how Abraham was justified. So uh, if that's all, I'm done a couple minutes early. If anyone has any comments or questions, you can shout them out now, or if it's more important matter, you can, you can see me afterwards. All right, if not, done a couple minutes early. I appreciate your attention. Thank you very much.